two men on a mission to bring you film geekery. Yes, it's the film file. Hello and welcome to the film file, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. I am one of your sitting resident geeks, Lee Ford. I'm half sitting and I'm Andy Meekin. Are you a lounging film geek? I'm a lounging film geek. I'm, I'm wearing me lounge outfit today, as you can see. Your lounge so. geekery. <laughs> Listeners at home, I'm, I'm sat here in my dressing gown. What? <laughs> Basically, I've only just got out of it's bed. It's <laughs> early. It's early today. It's early and it's been a busy weekend. Yeah, it so has. You, you, you've had a hectic couple of days gigging yeah. again on Friday, weren't you? Yeah, near your hometown. Well, when I say near your hometown, about 40 minutes away from Liverpool. Yeah. Well, that was an experience. Beautiful theatre, massive yeah. stage, the worst sound I've ever played to ever. And you can tell it's one of those venues where they're used to having pantomimes on. And yeah. they made a pantomime of our gig, I can tell you. I saw the post that uh, went out from the Billion Dollar Facebook page. And it was good to see the, the response from the people who were there saying, you know, even with the sound problems, you guys smashed it. And, yeah, it you was, know, it was please, hard. please come back and here's a better venue to go to next time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's always my worry. It's, I'm, you know, it's, if you've, you've alienated your audience, that's when I uh, uh, that's when I take it kind of on the chin. I take it a little bit personally. Yeah, but uh, no, I think people were very forgiving. It was it was a, such a shame because it was a, it was great to play such a massive, massive stage. Yeah, um, I need to play more of those. I have a plan, a fiendish plan for, <laughs> if not next year, the year after that. I, that will take some building to, but it's fiendish and it's a I, plan. I have a cunning plan, my lord. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? Uh, well, we're, we've been busy. There's, there's there's this film that came out of nowhere this week. I'd really Shocked everybody. Small. Really small, like, film about, like, people in costumes and, like, strange underwater beings and things like that. I just said, wow, who'd have expected it to sell out so many screens? Yes, we've been busy this weekend. Oh, and we'll be talking good. about Black Panther later on the show. But, um, yeah, it's it's been good numbers, uh, sold-out sessions um, across pretty much all of our screens. And it's not felt bad, though, because we've had the right amount of staff on at work. And it's yeah. just been a good atmosphere. We always like kind of, all of our team always step up beautifully when we get to the busy weekends because you can have weeks where it's quiet and it's you're struggling to like keep focused because there's nothing to do, and then you get a busy weekend and you're always worried that like everyone's still going to be in that like let's just sit back and chill out mode, but everyone just steps up and it runs like a dream, absolutely like a dream. Yeah, everyone's just lapping it up. I'm hoping, hoping that unlike other superhero films, this one continues through. For future weeks and doesn't have the huge drop-off that we've seen over the past year well i mean apart from top gun maverick which has pretty much retained uh in every week it was out retained most of its box office supremacy you know everything else has had a, a pretty much a short run short and sweet human films that have done relatively well i hope and it doesn't matter whether it's a marvel film or a dc film i hope that you know you get the numbers because it's good for everybody it's good for what yeah. we do. It's good for the cinemas, good for production, good for yeah. audiences. Everybody wins when you get a film like that. This week as well as also, like, I've, I've had a, a few bits of good news with regards like activities next year. And, and on a little side note, I just need to say that I still can't get over how fast this new computer is because uh, <laughs> I, I set up to put the pod, like to record for the podcast today. And not, in the past, it used to be switch your computer on, go make yourself something to eat and drink, and maybe it'll be in Windows by the time you get there. And then you've still got 15 minutes before it'll actually let me get online. And literally, I clicked the button, went over to the kettle, put it on, looked back, and my computer was switched on. I was like, whoa, yeah, it's that fast now. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's sidetracking. Next year, I've got two gigs to go to. 
I okay. mean, I'll probably I'll probably end up going through to a handful of other smaller gigs, but I've got two ones that I consider major. Okay. First one, and I've loved him right from the early '80s all the way through, and I'll be talking about his film today on the show, and that's Weird Al. I'm going to see him in Manchester. I've always oh, yeah. wanted to see him live. Um, tickets went on sale this week, and I managed to nab me and my mate a couple of tickets to head over. Can't wait. Emo Phillips is um, warming up the crowds. Really? I, I didn't Emo even Phillips was, still was one around. of those. Um, no, I didn't. I, I mean, he was he was of a certain age yeah. back in the eighties. So I, I never quite got it. Got his humour. Um, it's a spaced out comedy. Yeah, it, it didn't quite land for me. Out of all the other sort of people who were around at that time, those sorts of stand-up comedians, Emo Phillips was the one that didn't work for me. I didn't like the voice. Yeah, I was always into Stephen Wright. I thought, I, I've got one of his, his comedy albums. In the days when they used to make comedy albums, I was <laughs> like Stephen Wright. He was he was uh, a bit stoner, but he was very clever along alongside it. But no, I didn't know Emo Phillips was uh, still on the scene. So that's one gig down. What's the other one? And then the other one, it's a smaller group. I mean, they're not really well known. Um, and they, they partnered up with another very unknown group. Someone called uh, Def something, Def Lep. And uh, Motley Motley Gang or Motley yeah, Crew, something like, something that, like that. Yes, uh, you remember a few years ago when they were last when Def Leppard were last in Sheffield. Like I had a few tickets and I got me sister. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> I got yeah. You 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 were wor- working there. I got me sister a ticket for her fiftieth birthday. Well, she's returned the favour because it's my fiftieth next year. So she's Who'd got me the tickets. For... I thought it was just a young whippersnapper. It's it's almost like Joe and the Gang. I've realised that there's 50th birthdays of significance, so he needs to put a gig in Sheffield <laughs> round about these times just for me. So thank you, Joe. You, you absolutely love you for doing this. Yep, going to be uh, spending the afternoon, well, late afternoon to evening in Bramall Lane, watching lots of great rock. Can't I know. Think. I'm hoping. Well, I'm I'm hoping to be there. I think it's probably a bit of a dead cert that I will be there. Yeah. And um, whether I'm working it yet, I don't know. I'm I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that I'm I'm on the crew. If you can put in a good word to Joe and just mention, you know, it's Andy's fiftieth birthday, that'd be marvellous. See what I can do. Talking <laughs> um, of Def Leppard, there's a um, there's a book called A Lucky Leopard Fan, and it's all about sharing memorabilia and collecting uh, collecting Def Leppard stuff. And the story is sort of about their uh, what it's like to be a fan. Mm. Turns out I'm in it. Yay! I didn't know. You've I know the author, the <laughs> a guy called David Allen. Yeah. And it's basically, it, it's one fan who shares his own experiences following the band. You know, the highs <laughs> and lows of collecting and attending shows. And he sent me a copy and saying, uh, um, I think you should have a copy of this because you are, um, you're in it. So there you go. <laughs> I see that Joe's also done one of his uh, YouTube videos pre-tour, look around the tour bus mm. again. I love watching them because I love his enthusiasm over beans on toast. <laughs> Who he like always takes out a tins of beans to say that the one essential that he always takes with him and takes up and then we'll start saying love beans on toast. Marvellous. It's it, I'd love to live in that tour bus. That that's that that tour bus is bigger than my house. It is memory. It is, it is cool. I have been on that particular tour bus more than once. But yeah, so I'm so looking forward. That's two gigs. Like I say, there'll probably be more gigs that I'll end up getting to. Yeah, I've got to eventually I've got as well. You guys will be gigging somewhere where I can get to when I'm not working. I know. Which, uh... The nearest place to us is uh, well, we're in Rotherham, twenty uh, fifth. I think it's a Saturday, and then another mm. show in Wakefield, and I think that's it. We've had one one gig cancelled which was in Liverpool at the Shankly yep. Hotel, which was very disappointing. I was looking forward to that. 
but yeah i'll uh, i'll let you know um for me hollywood vampires touring next year again i i was supposed to be on the crew for that uh, and then the uh, uh the pandemic hit so i'm hoping my place is still still open i shall keep you all posted because it's not just uh film geekery it's, it's a little bit of old geekery it's old but geekery we're, we're, we're very big geek. geeks in addition on the on the flip side this week i've gone very quiet on twitter have you left twitter um, I've not quiet. left. I'm still keeping the uh, profile there for posting out links to the show and any like stuff to do with the show, but I'm not getting actively involved on that platform from this point onwards because, well, I had 12 NFT bots tagging me and linking me into things within the space of three days because, you know, that new owner of it, that's a guy who paid 44 billion for something and is now trying to make people pay to use Twitter. He loves NFTs, so obviously all those accounts have come back. Also, a Explain lot of NFTs to us, Andy, for those who don't know. Look, I, I, I wish I could explain F- NFTs. All I'm going to say is that you pay a stupid amount of money to get the exclusive rights to a blockchain, which the blockchain is a series of codes that like you have the identification to say that you are the owner of this piece of digital art or media that you can't actually do anything with. You can't uh, own it. You don't actually own it physically. It's just like it's a bit of digital information out there. And yet people can get exactly the same picture and just post it online and print it off and do whatever. So you don't own a thing. Okay. I was wondering what they were. You just basically pay money to say, I own the blockchain element. I own the series of code. It's like, good for you. And so what if uh, technology suddenly depletes and uh, everything shuts down? What happens? Do you get access to it? Oh, I won't be able to. Okay. Can you go and visit it in a museum or something? No, it doesn't exist. Okay. Because you can't print it off. Well, you you could do, but so could like 4,000 other people. Right. There's nothing to stop other people. Just You might say, I, I own that image. It's like, do you really? Because I can just go online and find that image and I can save a copy onto my desktop and I own that image at that point. It's There's no ownership involved. It's I, it's just as calm. And I'm sure out there in the, you know, because we do talk to a geek community, there'll be some NFT people who are like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's like, you know why? Because it's nonsense and you just make up the rules on this. Garbage. NFTs are just a, another bit. It, it, it's like cryptocurrency. It doesn't really exist. It only exists because people are convinced that it exists and is worth something. Um, it's not like, you know, Funko Pops. I've got a physical Funko Pops that I could sell for £80 that I picked up for £10 when they first came out. They're a physical item. NFTs are not a physical item. So when people are selling them on, they're selling on just the ownership of some bit of code somewhere online. Don't so get it. that's driven you out of uh, Twitter. I, I... There's a lot of people I'm following have gone. That and these, there's now a bit of a surge of the right wing elements I've coming back onto that. there. Yeah. Because Musk has said that he might reinstate twi- uh, Trump's Twitter account. And so they're all like, Musk's one of us. And so they're all jumping on. Then Musk's attitude himself. Now, as he's introducing the Twitter blue, which is the paid Twitter thing, so that if you want to get authorized, like if you want to get verified, you just pay. And although they said, oh, there'll be loads of stringent checks to make sure that you're not um, using someone else's identity, it was proven within day one that anyone can create any identity and get verified. And so I could go on there and call myself Stephen Fry, and I could be verified as Stephen Fry. There have been a lot of uh, very amusing moments, though, <laughs> with <laughs> people taking control of the blue tick. Maybe now's not the time to discuss it, but there have been some quite amusing takedowns of huge corporations by yeah. them taking the huge, huge tick, um, including Coca-Cola. 
We don't endorse it, of course, because we're a, a, yeah. a community. No, we're not vindictive in any way, but it was very amusing. But the whole Twitter blue aspect as well also gives it gives priority to people with verified accounts so that when you go onto your feed, you'll see more blue tick responses than normal responses. You have to really scroll down. And let's be honest, when people are browsing Twitter, you don't sit there for 20 minutes scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. You usually scroll for about half a minute to see what the top lot of stuff are. So basically, you're only going to see the responses from people who are paid to respond and i don't trust people who are paying to get their voice out there Mm -hmm. because they've got an agenda it's no longer the social hub social community that it was it's no longer access for everyone to be able to interact it's now access for the elite and privileged or the bots who were paid for stuff and then everyone else gets buried so i've i've grown dissatisfied with the practice that's going on I don't like how Elon Musk is basically being aloof and snobbyish about anyone complaining about stuff. And so I've started migrating over to Mastodon, which is a lot more a lot more personal and interactive. Um, very similar in Twitter in the layout, but there's it promotes discussion within groups while you can still link outside. And so you will only get notifications from people who you want notifications for. So you won't get advertised spam bots. You won't get like you won't necessarily get um, replies to people who you don't follow because it doesn't work on that kind of same algorithm system and it doesn't like force promote things you will see things in order of when they posted and yeah you basically go on there do an introduction post loads of hashtags of what your interests are and people will link up with you okay i'll, I'll probably end up being there so far um, it seems really good a few celebrities have started making their way on there so it looks like i mean mastodon has been going for a while but has only had like a very small number of people so they've had a lot of problems with their servers over the past week because they've had a huge influx of people who are leaving twitter and this just shows that once big corporation i.e elon musk takes over on something that was once open access it loses its loses its popularity who remembers the days of myspace (laughs) exactly (laughs) where's old tom now he was everyone's friend (laughs) (laughs) so other than talking of twitter what have we got for you on this week's show well of course we've got a whole bundle of news box office We've got reviews, we've got deep dives. But before any of that, let's give you a little bit of news. So, as we know, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever landed this week. And what kind of an impact has that made on the box office? And I'm going to go with a pretty hefty one. So it's all about Black Panther this week with the box office in the US. It opened in first place. It opened in first place pretty much all territories worldwide that it was released in. Um, in the US, it did 181 million over this weekend. In its three days over there, it's already outperformed Black Adam after four weeks. Black Adam itself drops into second place. It might have held that top spot, but it didn't have a lot of competition up until this week. It took another 8.1 million. It does put its total in the US up to 150 million so far. Third place, Tickets Paradise, 5.9 million. Fourth place, Lyle Lyle Crocodile with 3.2 million added to his total. And Smile still holding into the top five with another 2.3 million. Here in the UK, it's pretty much more of the same. We've got Black Panther in first place. It took just under 12.5 million pounds this weekend. A pretty solid opening weekend. It's the third highest for the UK of 2022 so far behind Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and the Batman. In second place, Black Adam, which took another 780,000, taking its total for the UK to 18.5 million. Lao Lao Crocodile in third place, taking another 646,000. 
Banshees of Inner Sheeran, another 560,000 added to its total, putting it into fourth place. And then Living takes another 492,000, keeping it into fifth place for this week. The really strong opening after three days of Black Panther, its worldwide total is currently up to 331.6 million. Black Adam, just for reference, after four weeks of release, is on 351 million. So in three days, Black Panther has almost completely outgrossed Black Adam. And by the end of this week, it will have done. So I'm guessing, unless anything happens otherwise, that uh, it's going to have a fairly good holdover, even if the figures do drop. There's nothing next week to compete with it, really, is there? There's nothing to particularly compete with it. But as we'll see later on when we go through the roundup of what's coming out, there's a lot of potential content. And my worry is that, you know, I want Black Panther to hold over for the second week. I want it to prove that superhero films still have an audience that will sustain. But that's going to take away screens for the other content that I think deserves to get screened at cinemas next week. And some cinemas will end up just maximising Black Panther again. And some of the upcoming films will get sidelined and either just given one show a day or none at all. Whenever you say, oh, it's a quiet week straight after a big, big release, I always feel sorry for the quiet release films because they don't get a chance to stand out. No, I'm with you. I'm with you on it. Okay, so let's move on to the news. What do we got? Yeah, no, let's let's be honest. We're expecting Wakanda Forever to have at least a few Oscar mentions. And uh, the Oscars this year, that ties in nicely to mentioning that Jimmy Kimmel is going to host the Oscars for the third time. Okay. As you know from the recent ones and when we spoke about the recent ones on the show, um, as a huge fan of watching the Oscars, I've been very disappointed with the past two years of productions. I didn't watch it last year. I really, I, I watched the highlights and that was it. Well, they try, they try to be all hip and down with the kids with their Twitter voting and things like that this year. And, and that didn't turn out well. We didn't need that because it just ended up stoking the Snyder bots even more who were like, Zach's won an Oscar. He hasn't. He's won a Twitter poll. No, no, no. He's won an Oscar. He's not won a thing. Let it go, Andy. Let it go. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, uh, Jimmy Kimmel hosted pr- twice previously, and I got some love for Jimmy Kimmel's style, and I think that he's yeah, a great host for the Oscars, and I think this is the right move, because last year's, it didn't quite pay off, and the year before, they had it hostless, and it didn't pay off. You need that one linchpin, you need that one person to hold it together, and he's the kind of person who keeps it all tightly packed in. March the 12th, 2023 will be the date that I'm booking off work uh, to to sit and watch it overnight. And let's hope that the viewer rating slides of recent years caused by the terrible show during lockdown and then this year's miserable attempt to be relevant swings back the other way. I'd like to see the audience come back for the Oscars. I'd like to see the Oscars be a great ceremony again. Only time will tell. Fingers crossed. Star Wars news. Yeah, well, I was going to jump in actually there, Andy, and talk about Sean Levy, who was in talks to direct a Star Wars film. I bet that's <laughs> exactly what you're going to the say. next next thing on my list. <laughs> what do we know about it? Yeah, so in this week's random turn of the director's wheel, Sean Levy has been tapped to direct a Star Wars film, joining the ranks of all those others who are tapped to make film. You know, like Ryan Johnson, Taika Waititi, Patty Jenkins, J.D. Dillard. You know, all the people who have been apparently making Star Wars films that are never getting made. Uh, we don't know much about what the idea is going to be that Sean Levy is working with, but we just know that he's the latest director be, to be joining those ranks. We do know at the same time that J.D. Dillard is no longer linked to any. Yes. Well, he said he's not done with the idea of bringing a space epic to the screen. But his idea for Star Wars went nowhere and not through lack of trying. He pushed and pushed and pushed, but it just kept getting blocked at every avenue. And so he's 
he's tempted to now make an original idea now with what his notes were for his slice of space fantasy, much like uh, Snyder's Rebel Moon. Yes. Which started as a Star Wars pitch, was rejected, and so he's re-engineered it to make his own franchise. Dillard may be doing something similar. So we might start to see, like we've got superhero films, we might start to see a dirge of Star Wars-esque features, which will take our minds back to the late 70s and early 80s when we had this happen last time. Well, Levy's a a busy guy, as we know. He's uh, an executive producer and occasional director on Stranger Things as the show moves into its fifth and its final season. There's also Deadpool 3 with his collaborator uh, and probably best hanging out mate, Ryan Reynolds, and that's due to hit the screens at this stage, 24 stroke 25. So it's going to be at least 25 before um, Sean Levy untaps his Star Wars potential, so to speak. Yeah, which means don't hold your breath on hearing any news of this progressing forwards any further because let's be honest if we if we started holding our breath when ryan johnson was developing his trilogy we'd all be dead by now <laughs> floating in space jd dillard was also linked with the rocketeer sequel at one point yeah that's the that's the sad news that's no longer his baby either that's he doesn't know what the what's happening with that whether it's actually happening at all but he's no longer involved in it spinning backgrounds to you know you you I'm, you gave me a nice little segue by mentioning deadpool and Ryan Reynolds has been uh, busy on the promotional tour for Spirited, which lands in cinemas pretty soon and goes straight to Apple at the same time. And in, in amongst it, he's been revealing some stuff of other projects, such as with Deadpool, the Deadpool 3 movie. The whole idea for Hugh Jackman to come back and reprise his role as Wolverine, apparently it was Jackman himself who uh, right. pushed for it. In Ryan Reynolds' own words, he said that, I don't believe that I'm responsible for Hugh coming back. I always wanted Hugh to come back. My first meeting with Kevin Feige when Disney brought Fox years ago, maybe three years ago or three and a half, I'm not sure. I was doing a movie with the two of us, a Deadpool Wolverine movie, and that was not possible at the time. And then Hugh just happened to call at that perfect moment and express that he'd be interested in coming back and doing this one more time. And the contents of that conversation, I'll let Hugh answer that on his own, but he expressed interest in coming back. And then it was my job to take that to Kevin Feige and one more t- for one more time and sell it. So it was all because Hugh suddenly like picked up the phone and went, I'm going to do this, that has got the ball rolling on it. Sounds like a labour of love then, doesn't it? Rather than just a a marketing device. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Um, Also take this one with a pinch of salt, but there's rumours that Deadpool 3 will see the Merc with the mouth going multiverse and popping up in past Fox franchises, such as the X-Men films of the early 2000s and 2005's Tim Story's Fantastic Four as part of the plotline. I like that idea. Because let's be honest, this Deadpool film has to find a way to bring him kind of to the MCU and the multiverse is the perfect way to do it and to swing him through it. If these rumours are true, it suggests that it's going to be taking a you know Doctor Strange multiverse kind of film approach, jumping from one reality to another. And I'm all for that. I'm all for the chance to see him mocking everything that went wrong with the Fox universe. We didn't mention this on our Star Wars films, but Studio Ghibli is teasing a mysterious Lucasfilm collaboration. Yes. What it's intended to be is a short film centred on Grogu, a.k.a. Baby Yoda, which is called Zen, Grogu and Dust Bunnies, hand-drawn animated short by Studio Ghibli, the creators of Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, etc., etc. It's timed with the three-year anniversary of The Mandalorian, 
and it's arriving several months ahead of the third series of the premiere short. So apparently it should be streaming right now on Disney+. Plus. It's a thing. It's certainly now a thing. It, 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 was, it was interesting how it's been revealed like in a little tease only a few days before they dropped it. I mean, that they've kept that secret. Yeah. They're very good at keeping secrets. I don't know how they do it, especially in this day of the internet. Uh, back to Ryan. Because I do like talking about Ryan Reynolds. He's also been talking about the Dragon's Lair project that was announced about two years ago, which is based on the 80s video game with the Don Bluth animation. That that machine swallowed pound after pound after pound with me because it was impossible to play, but it was beautiful to watch. It followed the story of Dirk the Daring rescuing Princess Daphne from the Dragon Singe. And in Reynolds' words, I can say that Netflix has approached Dragon's Lair in a spirit of partnership that I've never really seen before. They're taking such a swing with it. How we're approaching it and attacking it and what we're doing with it, I think will be pretty surprising to a lot of people in its scope, I mean. I'm not sure, but I don't think anyone's ever tried it quite like this before. So I'm curious to see how it will go. It really intersects in a unique way with technology that I've never been privy to in the entertainment industry. So they're taking some kind of pretty innovative stabs at this particular IP in a way that I'm blown away with. And I'm excited that they're as long as along for the ride as we are. Now, all of that suggests to me interactive movie. Yeah, could be. That's, I mean, they've, they've dabbled in it, Netflix. So yep. it isn't out of the realms of the ridiculous at all. Because, uh, yeah, they've dabbled with it with Bandersnatch. There was a couple of other things. And they also have the trivia quiz interactive shows on there at the moment. So they've dabbled with it. And they've always said that that's where they can see the future of some entertainment. And something like Dragon's Lair, done as that kind of interactive movie will fit into the theme of the actual game itself where you didn't actually control much you just interacted every now and then to choose to jump left or jump right and if you get a moment in the film where you choose the passage of the film man i'll be re-watching this film over and over again just to get all the different endings i'm hoping that's the way they go because i i think that it'll fit the idea of it but i'm more hoping that they get the style of it right because the, the dragon's lair video game had great humor it had a great visual style to it Don Bluth's animation was amazing they need to tap into that kind of aesthetic fingers crossed it has got Ryan Reynolds in it so of course it automatically gets at least two stars out of me so did you see uh the John Wick chapter four trailer that landed this week Andy did I see it multiple times over and over again wasn't that great seasons in the sun used as a theme tune (laughs) (laughs) well Keanu Reeves is not just uh appearing in John Wick he's going to be appearing in the spin-off which stars Anna de Armas, uh, the ballerina. So uh, while it's a spin-off movie, its connections to the John Wick universe are going to be quite tight, as it is featuring Keanu himself, the nicest guy in Hollywood, apparently. This is Len Wiseman's film, Ballerina, which it's not known yet how much of a part Wick will have in it, whether it will just be a small cameo or whether he'll be an integral part. But he's currently shooting his scenes on location in Prague, I believe. Yeah. We're also going to see Ian McShane reprise his role of Winston in Ballerina as well. And the character of Winston is also going to be the focus of the prequel series, The Continental, which is going to be a three-parter that will be coming to streaming pretty soon. So the John Wick franchise isn't showing any signs of slowing down. And that trailer for John Wick 4, seriously, guys, if you've not watched the trailer for John Wick 4, just get onto YouTube, get that watched, because it's a work of beauty. It's art, isn't it? It is art. It makes gun violence look so beautiful. Talking of violence, Viola Davis has suddenly entered into being somewhat of an action icon. Uh, We saw in The Suicide Squad, and she was uh, badass in The Woman King, but her her next role will be as a commander-in-chief of the entire U.S. Armed Forces. 
because Davies is on to play the US president in a new action thriller called G20. Yes, she's doing what I consider now as a Liam Neeson. She's someone who is generally known for like dramas, who has suddenly redefined themselves as this forefront action hero. And I love it. She's she's marvellous in The Woman King. When I reviewed it on the show, I said that like she's absolutely fierce on screen. She's powerful. She's really imposing. I'm excited to see her become this new action star for a new era because she's absolutely got presence on screen. Can't wait for that. Also with violence, Stallone has been talking about the Rocky franchise, which um, he has no involvement in it now, aside from an ongoing legal battle over the rights. Uh, he made a post earlier this year regarding Erwin Winkler holding the rights, and he spoke with THR this week about an update on it. He said that like the rights getting back to him, it's never going to happen. It's a deal that was unbeknownst to me by p- people that I thought were close to me, and he basically gave away what rights I would have had. At the time, I was excited to be working, me talking back to when he first started making the first film. I didn't understand that this is a business. Who knew that? Rocky would go on for 45 years. I've never used one line of dialogue from anyone else. And the irony is that I don't own any of it. The people who have done literally nothing control it. So he still feels a bit bitter about the whole thing. I don't don't blame blame him. It's his creation. Yeah, right right from the start, it was always Stallone. We know that he's not being involved with Creed 3, aside from having like a executive producer credit because he created the character. But Michael B. Jordan's film has been getting a lot of buzz. And so he was asked, how does he feel about the possibility of watching a Rocky-esque film that he didn't make? His response was, it's a regretful situation because I know what it could have been. It was taken in a direction that's quite different than what I would have taken it. It's a very different philosophy. Erwin Winkler's and Michael B. Jordan's, I wish them well, but I'm much more of a sentimentalist. I like my heroes getting beat up, but I just don't want them going into dark space and I feel people have enough darkness. He has, however, because you remember a few months ago when he made the posts, he was very critical about Dolph Lundgren's Drago spinoff. Yeah. Apparently, he's patched up with um, Dolph and uh, they've bonded again. He's admitted that he was maybe a bit um, angry at the time and struck out at the wrong person because it's not Dolph's fault that he's just been recruited to get involved in something. And he's also spoken about the prequel series that he's still hoping he'll get bring to the screen. Um, He's been pitching it over the recent years and it's planned to be set during the 60s. And apparently it may happen because Amazon's now involved and it's pretty close. There's a side of Stallone that goes, is this really going to work? Every time that you try to do a Son of Kong, Son of Tarzan, it doesn't work. There's certain indescribable formula that happens. So he's still refining it. But with Amazon involved, it's more likely that that series will come to fruition. And he also gave an update on the Rambo prequel because Stallone's all about revisiting his past at the moment. He thinks that the Rambo prequel is going to happen. He's wanted to do it like a Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam where they drop young Rambo in there and he's this outgoing guy, football captain, and then you see why he becomes Rambo. And we're talking the Rambo of First Blood, the broken, damaged man, which the war broke. And he wants to explore... The first Blood was the best out of all of them. It was, yeah. uh, it was never better. He wants to explore how someone who's like, a, you know, really like excitable and like, you know, it wants to basically do a Vietnam War story of how it broke so many GIs. It's getting close, apparently. And in the meantime, if you want to catch Stallone, he comes to Paramount TV this week in Tulsa King. Which we've talked about on previous shows. Yep. So here's some quick hits for you. Alan Hughes, he of the Hughes Brothers, is to be directing a Snoop Dogg biopic. Um, Tom Holland is rumoured to have now struck a multi-film Spider-Man deal with Sony and Marvel. And at the same time, Daniel Kaluuya is going to be playing Spider-Punk in Across the Spider-Verse, the animated sequel to Into the Spider-Verse. And apparently Tom Holland's character from the Spidey films and the character from the Insomniac games are both popping up in Spider-Verse. 
We've got AMC are planning Good Night and Good Luck as a six-episode TV series adaptation of the George Clooney movie. Fantastic movie. Jonathan Glazer is tagged to produce and act as showrunner. A couple of bits of casting that got me excited. Lin-Manuel Miranda has joined the cast of Percy Jackson and the Olympians series for Disney+, Plus, playing the Greek god Hermes. Uh, this is the one that stars the young Walter Scoble, who was so great in The Adam Project. Uh, Hannah Waddingham, who I absolutely adore from Ted Lasso, has joined the cast of The Fall Guy, which is now ramping up to be the most anticipated film for me after Barbie. And we also know a bit of the brief plot on The Fall Guy now. It's got to focus on the battered stuntman played by Gosling, who finds himself back on a movie with a star, Taylor Johnson, for whom he doubled long ago. But Taylor Johnson's character goes missing, and Waddingham plays a producer of the movie. So that's the basic plotline. Star Wars The Acolyte confirms cast as production has begun on the new Disney Plus series. We know that it's led by creator Leslie Headland, who brought you Russian Doll. And as we announced a few weeks back, Amandla Stenberg is the series lead, and the cast also includes Squid Games' Lee Jung-jae, The Good Places' Manny Jacinto, his Dark Materials' Daphne Keane, and Queen and Slim's Jodie Turner-Smith, and the legendary Carrie-Anne Moss. Travis Fimmel, who you might recognise from Vikings and Raised by Wolves, has joined the June The Sisterhood series for HBO Max. He'll be playing Desmond Hart, a charismatic soldier with an enigmatic past who seeks to gain the Emperor's trust at the expense of the Sisterhood. And preparing for a potential drop in box office, James Cameron is ready for Avatar 2 to maybe not bring audiences back in the way that he hoped. Okay. We know that he's already like considered like that this is going to be five films or more in the Avatar universe, but he's now suggested that if this film doesn't perform how he wants, then he knows how he can get it into just three films instead and tell the whole story. <laughs> Knowing Cameron means like the final film will be eight hours long. <laughs> but yeah, he said that, that the market could be telling us we're done in three months or we might be semi-done, meaning, okay, let's complete the story within movie three and not go on endlessly. So he's kind of noticing the box office at the moment is very quick on the drop-off, drop-offs and not anticipating Avatar, to, Avatar 2 to do the similar constant business that the first one did we'll find out next month how that's going to play out but it, it is interesting that he start because he's always been very much i can tell loads of stories in this setting and people will flock to it but now he's getting a bit of trepidation by the looks of it and i don't blame him and one bit of news that made me a bit excited now dreamworks as the bad guys landed on netflix last week and when i reviewed it when it came out at the cinemas i loved it it was a great little animated heist movie, and I recommend everyone to watch it. Well, it's been a huge hit for Netflix since landing, and now Netflix has announced a festive special for next year. That'll make you happy. Yes. That's your Christmas present for next year from Netflix. The storyline will see the bad guys ready to celebrate Christmas Day, a time when they plan to pull off the citywide holiday heist of their dreams, but they're forced to change their plans because Christmas is cancelled. So instead of sealing... They do the unthinkable and put their villainous ways aside to help restore the holiday cheer that everyone seems to have lost. No idea at this point in time if the original voice cast will return, but hopefully they will, they will because it was a voice cast of Sam Rockwell, Mark Maron, Anthony Ramos, Craig Robinson, Zazie Beats, Richard Ayoade, Alex Borstein and Lily Singh. And they were all marvellous. I'm there for more bad guys. I thought that it was a gem of animation. It was beautiful animation. It was stylized, and it was a great heist movie at the same time. That's about it for this week's news. But sadly, we have to say goodbye to some, well, geek favorites. And I'm going to get the ball rolling. Uh, and I hate doing this, 
because someone like Leslie Phillips has been a part of most of our lives. Even newish fans will recognise him. He was a beloved actor known for his rakish performance and his warm personal nature and had a career that spanned different generations. Uh, Phillips, you'll know from the Doctor series and the Carry On films. He appeared later in Brothers-in-Law, Just My Look, Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun, Scandal. He was in King Ralph, The Jackal. I don't remember him, but he was in Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, uh, <laughs> Millions, Harley Street, Heartbeat, The Bill, and Harry Potter fans, of course, would know him as the voice of the Sorting Hat in three of the films. As an actor, he was the main part of the cast in the BBC's long-running classic, The Navy Lark, and Phillips died in his sleep on Monday after a long illness. If you ever want to look up rakish in a dictionary, I'm sure there should be a picture of Leslie Phillips. His smooth upper-class um, approach with, like, his uh, ding-dong and, oh, hello. Um, it, it was smooth, charming, and for me, it was like Carry On Constable and Carry On Teacher that introduced me to him. I'm a big fan of the Carry On films, and we will deep dive some of them at some point, but he was one, he wasn't in a lot of the Carry On films. It was mainly the Doctor series, wasn't it? Was, yeah, was his presence was notable, and absolutely, absolutely loved him through the years. Always interesting to see him when he popped up in more serious roles, because you always expected him to be like, oh, hello. But no, he, he he was a solid actor as well. So it's a sad loss. 98. I mean, that's yeah. that's a really good innings with a really good catalogue of films. And he was he was so beloved, particularly in the UK. Um, he was really beloved. Absolutely. Um, probably a name that you're not going to recognise, but uh, if you're part of geek culture, then Kevin O'Neill passed away this week. Kevin O'Neill, a comic book artist whose work Initially started in 2000 AD. Uh, one of your favourite artists, I believe, Andy. Yes, uh, I, I mean through the through the years, I've always sketched things and I've, I've like cultivated a drawing style. And I used to draw so much, and a lot of my style was influenced by Kevin O'Neill in his early 2000 AD work, and particularly his work on Nemesis the Warlock, which he pretty much for the most of the 80s he did the artwork for the majority of the stories. When they changed the artist later on in volume five or volume six of Nemesis. I didn't take to the story as much because the art was so off-putting. His stylized, very angular and stylized artwork that he put through it. And he returned yeah. to the character in 2016 for 2000AD's Prog 2000 to do a one-off story to give a chance for the character to return back into the 2000AD realm which it hasn't been picked up on yet, but I, I emulated, my artwork was emulated from his style. That angular look, that thick lines, that that rather supernatural or otherworldly design presence that he did, and the detail in his backgrounds was impeccable. He was also known for martial law, which started out at Epic, which was a, a Marvel's, <laughs> um, Marvel's creator-owned line. And then, probably most famously, he started working with Alan Moore, who he, he credited as being his favourite yes. writer. And they created the amazing The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Now, if you only know it by the film, then you don't know it at all. And worth checking out if uh, you've never read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It's a, a complete, wonderful pairing of Alan Moore and, and Kevin O'Neill. And to think that there, there now can't be any more League of Extraordinary Gentlemen without... Uh, Kevin O'Neill drawing them. Yeah. It's just not the same. They were the perfect pairing, the perfect combination. And then sadly, uh, and I think this one hit me in the chest 
uh, we lost Kevin Conroy this week. Now, not a name that stands out that you will instantly recognise, unless, of course, you grew up watching Batman the Animated Series and Kevin Conroy voiced Batman. And let's be honest, he is the definitive Batman voice. Batman the Animated Series is a spectacular uh, animated show, and it defined Batman, taken very much from Tim Burton's view of the world, and then grew into something, well, its own identity. Uh, Conroy was so good as the voice of Batman across the the animated series that he entered into video games and and lent his voice to the Cape Crusader with uh, the Arkham Asylum games. Yeah. In total, after the Batman animated series, which ran from 92 to 96, he continued the role of Batman through nearly 60 different productions, 15 films, 400 episodes of television and multiple video games. He was the voice of Batman. And when I read Batman comics, his is the voice that I read the dialogue in. Yeah. It will always be Kevin Conroy. He was a fixture on the comic convention circuit. He was a big fan favorite with all the comic book geeks. Mark Hamill, who played his on-screen foil, the Joker, uh, mourned his collaborator in a, a really like personal statement. Uh, Kevin was perfection. He was one of my favorite people on the planet, and I loved him like a brother. He truly cared for the people around him. His decency shone through everything he did. Every time I saw him or spoke with him, my spirits were elevated. He has been seen on screen a few times. Even playing Bruce Wayne. Yeah, uh, in the Crisis crossover, I believe. That's right, yeah, the the, the uh, Warners did with The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah, very sad. Uh, um, one thing I need to point out is that he was an openly gay man. And he wrote a story called Finding Batman for this year's DC Comics Pride anthology. DC Comics have released that free on their website. It's incredibly moving. I don't think now, especially after Kevin Conroy's passing, that you won't be able to read it without a, a tear uh, coming to your eye. It is incredibly mo- moving. It's, it's a beautiful little piece of, uh, of storytelling. Um, he, it's very sad. He, he, will be, he will be missed by geeks across the globe for being the definitive Batman. Yeah. And that is this week's The News. Yes, you're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if you're not already a subscriber to the podcast, and if you are and you're new, hello. If you haven't, then all we ask you to do is to hit the subscribe button and leave a like and join the Film File family. If you want to know more about the Film File family, and it's a pretty big family, all you have to do is this. You can head on over to Twitter, uh, where you'll be kept up to date on latest episode drops. Or you can head over to Mastodon, sign up on there and search for at Film File UK where I'm starting to feel my way around and gain a presence on there to talk about films and share my thoughts on films as I see them. Uh, you can find us on Letterboxd, just search for Film File UK, and you'll find us on there. You can find us on other social media platforms. Again, just search for Film File UK on every social media platform. If we're on there, we'll pop up and you can follow us and keep up to date with us. Or get in touch with us directly. I mean, you used to be able to do this through Twitter, but I don't pay attention on there anymore. So get in touch with us via email podcast at filmfile.uk and anything that you want to mention about films any thoughts suggestions any particular favorites that you want us to deep dive anything that you want us to suffer a deep dive with that you think is terrible and you want to know what our opinion is throw it over there we're always open to ideas we can map out so many films but we'd love to talk about the films that you love we'd love to talk about the films that you hate we'd love to just talk about films let's be honest because that's what we do best yeah so podcast at filmfile uk drop us an email we'll get back in touch and you can join us every thursday on the radio 
on nobarriersradio.com for an hour of film file goodness. See, we're everywhere. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. This week's Deep Dive is going to take us back to 1970 for a World War II comedy drama and heist film directed by Brian G. Hutton about a motley crew of American GIs who go AWOL in order to rob a French bank located deep behind German lines. Starring Clint Eastwood, Telly Savalas, and a whole bunch more, we're going to be talking about Kelly's Heroes. Kelly! What the hell are you doing here? Looking after the colonel, that's what. Shoot him and let's get the hell out of here. Shoot him, we don't get the gold. What gold? Proposition. Thought you might be interested in helping me out. Oh. I want you to set up a barrage for me. Yeah. If you whisper one word about the gold to these guys, I'm going to have you bounce from this outfit so fast your feet won't even touch the ground. Okay, Kelly. What is it? I want the intelligence report for this whole sector, and I need them in the next two hours. That's nice. What's in it for me? Starring Clint Eastwood and Telly Savalas, co-starring comedy genius Don Rickles, Carol O'Connor, and a very hippified Donald Sutherland, providing comic absurdity. This is one of the great Clint Eastwood movies that you may not have ever seen. Written by British film and television writer Troy Kennedy Martin, he was responsible for The Sweeney, Edge of Darkness and The Italian Job. The film was a US-Yugoslav co-production. And I tell you what, it's great. I was introduced to this film on TV. It might have been a VHS rental. Or it might have just been a BBC movie of the weekend that I sat and watched with my mum. And I remember as a youngster, absolutely loving it. And then I, I went back to it when I was in my student years. Uh, me and my housemates popped it on one day. And I loved it. Going back to it as an adult, I I, I mean, when I watched it as a kid, I loved, I loved the tanks. I loved like some of the like humor in there. And I loved, you know, Donald Sutherland's hippie. As an adult, I loved the satire. I loved yeah. the commentary on war. And, you know, that it subverts the war film apparently loosely based on an actual heist that took place. Yes. The ger- the robbery of the German National Gold Reserves, 1945, where some US soldiers and German civilians raided Nazi gold. And whilst the film might have started in the script stage as a serious take, it evolved into what is a sharp, albeit slightly drawn out, film that balances the comedy to the seriousness, seriousness of the setting well enough. And there's a few points that the comedy kind of jars against the the horror of war aspects. The minefield sequence is seriously jarring, moment, like shift in tone. It goes from light to just boom. And maybe that's the point. And I think that's why I love it so much because, you know, people always talk about like, you know, that trench humor and like, you know, in the darker times, people turn to humor to get themselves through it. And using the humor in this, but then suddenly impacting with something which is shockingly serious it really conveys that whole aspect of, you know, the seriousness of war. This is a film that I go back to every about three or four years, and I always enjoy revisiting it. It's it's a film that I absolutely adore. I'm, I'm a big fan, as we've talked about many times on the show, of 1970s filmmaking. There's a, a quality to 1970s films that makes it into a complete time capsule. Um mm. I think it's when we moved out of the 60s and movies like Easy Rider were making films a little bit more edgy. Uh, New Hollywood was basically being invented. And the idea, especially of satirizing 
war was becoming stronger. You were having films like MASH and Catch-22, which I think this fits into into that genre of satirical war movies very, very well. Clint Eastwood has never been cooler. Donald Sutherland has never been funnier. He's completely out a man out of time. Yes, he's a hippie <laughs> in the uh, um, 1940s. But you know what? Because he's so cool in it, you, you, you don't care. And it, it's, just, it's just a blast of a film. It's a little bit all over the place. It's a little bit overlong, but it's a, it's a fine, fine film. And it's a real time capsule of the kind of filmmaking that, that came out at that point. And as I said before, Clint Eastwood has never been cooler. Hutton's previous film to this was Where Eagles Day, which was a much more serious toned war film. And for him to then just flip completely to bring a comedy heist movie. And it is a heist movie more than a war yes. movie. The war is the setting. The heist is the through line and the comedy aspect. I mean, most heist movies have an element of comedy in, in them anyway. And this is a great, I mean, we've mentioned before about, we said it when we talk about horrors, that when they take like a standard template, but put it into a different setting, it works a treat. And this is an example where a heist movie works a treat by putting it in a wartime setting. When I did my revisit of Clint Eastwood films a few years ago, which I've still got to get back to because I didn't realise exactly how many films he's been involved with. This was another high point. I rank this just after the Man With No Name trilogy. That Those three films will always be my favourite Clint Eastwood films. Good, The Bad, The Ugly, Fistful of Dollars, Few Dollars More. This is the fourth place and it's a strong fourth place Yeah, because it's so much fun. Like you say, Donald Sutherland's um, hippie out of time. It seems like such a bizarre idea. Let's have a, a, ta- a tank commander hippie in World War II, but it works so well and it works yeah. well to play that commentary on war through that character. And it's Donald Sutherland at the, at the beginning of him being top of his game, you know, this and MASH really established Donald Sutherland as, as a, being a huge screen presence. And, uh, and of course, he is to this this day still working. Around the rest of the cast, I mean, you've, you've got Telly Savalas in there as Big Joe. It was originally going to be George Kennedy. You could kind of see in that part. Mm. You've also got in there um, Harry Dean Sanson as oh, yeah. Willard. There's a load of faces and names in this that you'll recognise from other films because it was just one of those nice ensemble films, the kind of thing that we get these days with like your Oceans franchise, etc. This cast list was basically the Oceans of its day. Yeah, I'll go for that. I'll, I'll buy into that. I think it's, uh, you know, Kelly and Oddball and Big Joe, they're all part of this uh, this heist, which is is the backbone of, of most heist movies and the ensemble piece. Uh, before we started recording this, I mentioned that I used to have and I have no idea whatever happened to it. The soundtrack album to it by the great Lalo Schifrin, who is one of my all-time favourite movie composers. I think it's, uh, it was a fabulous one. And it had the song All for the Love of Sunshine on it, which um, which was just marvellous. It's a great soundtrack and is really pretty much part of the identity of this movie. And also with the fact that they send up Ennio Morricone on it as well. It's interesting as well that the location shooting of using Yugoslavia for a fair chunk of it was purely considered and used because it was one of the only nations whose army was still equipped with operating World War II mechanized equipment. Right. So it, it made it logistically easier for them to get their hands on M4 Sherman tanks by just like, we're going to shoot in your country. Can we borrow some of these? That simplified the film's logistics to a tremendous amount and clearly helped keep the budget down because you know when you consider it's a 1970 film it had a budget of four million that's quite a high budget yeah. for yeah. the 70s but i love the look of it i love the pacing and whilst the tone like i said it does jar it jars for the right reason it jars to make you appreciate that the horrors of war 
are so serious. If you haven't had a chance to see it, uh, if you've seen lots and lots of other Clint Eastwood films and you think Clint Eastwood in a comedy isn't going to work, check out Kelly's Heroes. And if, Andy, if you want to check out uh, Kelly's Heroes, where can we find it? Uh, it's not available for free on any service at the moment, but if you look around, you'll find it for rental or you can buy yourself the home releases in multiple formats. It's well worth adding to anyone's collection. I've got it as part of my complete Clint Eastwood collection. Do yourself a favour and add this one into your collection because it is a really good example of, like you say, that early 70s filmmaking and wartime satire. We've got another deep dive for you next week. And now it's time for the reviews. So we can't not kick off the reviews without talking about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. He's coming. Without the Black Panther, Wakanda will fall. Vibranium, he's covered in it. That can't be good. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, only in theater. So, following the death of King T'Challa, Shuri, played by Letitia Wright, uh, and Kui Ramonda, played by Angela Bassett, are struggling to move on. At the same time, there's a power vacuum which triggers an international incident. The rush for Wakandan resources and technology and a conflict with the underwater nation of Talokan. The first thing that hits you about uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, is that the film is an honest, eulogy to the much missed Chadwick Boseman. Right from the very, very first scene, you know what kind of a story you're in for. And at times, this film is both spectacular, action-packed, and utterly heartbreaking. I think it left you and I, when we saw this together, a little bit quiet afterwards. Mm. We sort of contemplated what we were, what we'd seen. This is a very unusual Marvel film. And I'll just add my 10 cents before you talk about it. Uh, it does suffer from some of the problems that recent Marvel films have for me. Uh, but one of them isn't, is it's, it does give the film time to, to play out. There's an awful lot of threads at work in this, which are, for the majority, tied up really, really well with, with some surprises. But it's, I, I couldn't help but watch this movie, Andy, without thinking that I wanted to see a Black Panther sequel with Chadwick Boseman in. I paraphrased a line from that other comic book franchise when I was talking about this and said that this isn't the Black Panther sequel that we wanted, but it was the Black Panther sequel that we needed. And I think that sums it up perfectly because it, it starts straight into them trying to find a cure for some off-screen disease that is taking the life of T'Challa. And then it goes into like the whole film from that point on is more or less a a thesis on grief and reconciliation with the world around you. It blurs the line, doesn't it, between real and and, and fictional all the way through. Every little bit. Um, The Marvel logo comes up as it usually does and takes its 45 seconds coming up on screen with no fanfare, just silence. And with all the images are now Chadwick Boseman images, similar to what you did after the passing of Stan Lee a few years ago that they did one dedicated to him. It's exactly the same in this. And it really hits when that look, because you expect the dun, 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 fanfare as the Marvel logo comes up. And the silence just makes you realise that this is going to be a very different feel to a Marvel film. 
And whilst it's epic and grand on scale at times and still has action set pieces that are jaw-dropping to watch, all the way through it, it's all about the personal journey, particularly of Shuri, played by Letitia Wright. And it's a very personal film, very heartfelt and very, very respective of the loss of such a great young actor far too soon. The film never shies away from it, does it? I mean, we it doesn't know it's... All the way through the plot, we've got the Queen Mother, Ramonda Angela Bassett, who is going on a spiritual journey. And while Shuri is, uh, is, is angry and vengeful and, and, and she's going on a journey that's using technology and her reliance on technology. So it, it never for a moment, this film doesn't stop eulogising Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, all the way through. His, his presence is felt throughout the film, even without him being in the film because it's all about Chadwick Boseman. It is all about that actor and that character. Uh, Casting-wise, now, Letitia Wright, we know, is good in support. She's been solid support in pretty much everything she's done. She's shone well as an actress. And regardless of what you think about her controversial opinions on COVID off-screen, you can't deny that she led this film to perfection. I said to you when this film had finished, Andy, that she gave such an amazing performance that the entire weight of the film is on her shoulders, both uh, with the narrative and, and, and personally, and she rises to the occasion amazingly. And she grows in this film from being the young girl that we met in uh, the original Black Panther and uh, the Avengers movies into being a, a, a young woman with purpose. And it's a, it's a mesmerizing performance. She holds the screen in a way that I couldn't imagine. Now, as you said, we know that she's a, a strong performer, but it was a, it's a heck of a performance to dominate the screen and to fill that void. Yeah, she's surrounded by, you know, the rest of the cast are all really on form. Lupita Nyong'o reprises as Nakia and is always great on screen. Another Another actor who's so good in support roles, and she demonstrates it here. Winston Duke is marvellous. And Mbaku. brings some lightness back to the, the movie. Yeah. So it doesn't get all bogged down in grief, don't get us wrong. Uh, there are the, there are moments of, of Marvel humour. Uh, not yeah. going to suggest for a moment that it's uh, the sort of humour that you had in Thor, Love and Thunder. Far from it. But there are moments of lightness which this film needs. And it balances the humour well. The newer entries to the series, you've got Dominique Thorne as Riri Williams, who doesn't, I felt disappointed because she didn't have a lot of impact on the film itself. But she's integral to the plot. She's not just yeah. a character. She's not one of those Marvel characters who gets thrown in because you know there's going to be an offshoot. She's actually, she's almost the MacGuffin to the rest of the movie. Yeah, I'd like to have seen more of her and I'm looking forward to seeing more of her when she Yeah, I'm now interested in, in, in Ironheart in a way that I wasn't before. I think it was a good way to introduce that character into the MCU, make her integral to the plot, like you say, so that you get to get the... The seriousness of her. And then you've got, um, I mean, come on. It's all about Tenochtitlan Major as um, Namo. We see a very different take on the Submariner to what we've we've seen in the comics. And of course, that, that had to happen. It had to happen because Aquaman, well, beat them to, to the screen. And he's a highlight. He's, it's a, a, a very imaginative take on this veteran comic character, one of the oldest comic characters there is. Uh, and it still ties into some of the themes that uh, Wakanda has and, and Black Panther has, which is colonialism, in this case, Spanish colonialism. Yeah. And there's a tangible reason 
for uh, Namor to exist within this story. And we get the arrogance that is the Submariner. We get Imperious Rex, which made you and I giggle <laughs> like schoolgirls. I was talking to some of the guys at work about that, and they didn't know what that reference was. <laughs> I was like, genuinely, that was just clearly put in there just for us long-time comic book geeks. And we got a, a, a new take on on the Submariner that, that felt tangible and a, a felt a part of the, this vilimicitude of, of the way that, that, that Wakanda has this Afro future. It fits in perfectly. And we get the Submariner that is, is arrogant and charming and dangerous all at once. It, it, it was a, a magnetic screen presence and, and a very interesting take on, on that particular character. One thing I'm going I'm to point out is what really did surprise me about the film. And that was the attack on the American military machine. Mm. which is very evident right from the get-go in, in one of the first big action sequences that we see. It's not afraid of, of tapping into, into politics in this film. Mm. Right from the offsets that after the intro logo, and you get the, the Wakandan response to after T'Challa had done the promise of sharing the secrets with the world. Well, that's kind of been rescinded. And that's where the politics come into it because, you know, the countries of the world can't be trusted. And it makes for a powerful scene played out, cutting backwards and forwards uh, between the United Nations uh, conference going on and the action moments of why the decision has been made. And yeah, it, it doesn't shy away from them. You've also got subterfuge from political organisations played out via Martin Freeman returning as Everett K. Ross and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who is really stepped into that role of Valentina Desfontaines, who is now the new director of the CIA. And that adds in that element of the US government can't be trusted. And they've been sowing the seeds of this on the TV shows. And they've been sowing the seeds just in the background. But now it's come to the forefront that the US appears to be making enemies of the rest of the world. And I'm, I'm curious as to where this is going to go. I'm curious how this is going to tie into future Marvel projects because it's no longer this. We're looking at a, a set setting now that is after the whole lot of the world united to defeat Thanos. But now America seems to be breaking away and it's definitely reflecting on real world politics in doing such a yeah. thing. This is why comic books have lasted through the decades because comic books have always done this. They've always tied into real world politics. And I'm so glad to see the big screen adventures doing exactly the same because that helps sustain them in a time when we're possibly entering, you know, comic book movie exhaustion. Yeah, I'll agree. I mean, for all the love that there's some some problems with it, I think there's, uh, again, a sense of feeling overly busy. And at moments I wanted to step back and the additions of the extended universe sometimes feels like baggage. Uh, and does become a bit sprawly at, at times and a little, little messy. I didn't think the last act was as tight as, say, uh, Black Panther. But as a as a eulogy to the passing of of Chadwick Boseman and taking and and doing and being bold and and tackling that without ever ignoring that it happened. You know, thank goodness we didn't get a recast. Yeah, it, this film ultimately lands on a a beautiful and poignant note, which is going to take us. Um, into some interesting territory further down the line. And Ryan Coogler has, has, and his cinematographer have produced probably the most beautiful looking of all Marvel films. And it's absolutely the whole thing. When it veers away from the being formulaic uh, of, of, uh, of, of Marvel, 
it stands out as being something beautifully compelling. And yeah. uh, as I said, the whole whole film isn't afraid to be a eulogy, and and that's what works in its favour. Uh, the only thing that the absence of Chadwick Boseman really played through watching the film for me is I wanted to see a Black Panther sequel with him in it. Yeah. What else have you got for us, Andy? Well, you remember last week I said that I was going to watch Ambulance and I'll bring that to the show this week. Did you? I watched it and I refused to waste much time on that. <laughs> all I'm going to say about Ambulance is that all the people who said that it's Michael Bay's like it's a more personal and like smaller production Michael Bay film. It's everything wrong with Michael Bay in a nutshell, including he's now got access to drone cameras. Yes, he's doing drone footage for no reason at all. It was a mess. It made me feel physically sick within 15 minutes because of the swift editing and constantly erratic camera. And Jake Gyllenhaal overacts his socks off and ruins every credibility that he's built up in the past few years. Don't waste your time on this film. That's a relief, Andy, because I was going to watch it and I felt really guilty that um, I didn't get a chance to watch it, but now I don't. So skipping yeah. over Ambulance, what's next? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to move on to something that I watched a couple of weeks ago and didn't get round to covering on the show because it's been quite busy on the streaming services. And that's... We're heading back to war. This time it's all quiet on the Western Front. Eric Maria Remarque's 1928 novel has seen a couple of adaptations over the years, with the early 1930 film from Lewis Milestone, which won a couple of Academy Awards, and the 1979 TV movie adaptation with Ernest Borgnine and Richard Thomas, itself receiving awards for the production. However, both of those films were English-language productions. The book was one of those chosen to be burnt during the rise of the Nazi regime, and Remark received a lot of criticism and negativity from his home country for his version of events drawn from his own experiences. This film, made nearly 95 years after the release of the book, is the first German adaptation of the material. The story focuses on a group of friends, primarily Paul, played by Felix Kammerer, in a stunning film debut, who all come from a small village and are unaware of how the Great War is actually going. They're led by the propaganda to believe that the war is almost over and it just needs a few brave heroes to join the victory. And so they sign up and find pretty early on that their romantic idea of how the war is going is swiftly shattered by the realities of trench warfare. As the film shifts to early November 1918, the film plays out two stories side by side, following Paul and his fellow soldiers in the midst of the war-torn areas, and Matthias Erzberger, played by Daniel Bruhl, a German officer making attempts to bring the war to an end through peaceful means. As the film gets closer to the now well-known 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, the impact of war is betrayed in devastating fashion. All Quiet has been selected by Germany as their submission for Best International Feature for next year's Academy Awards, and that's really no surprise. The whole production is so well realised, with the war-torn areas and trenches packed with small and horrific details, and lent a cold yet strikingly framed and beautiful eye by cinematographer James Friend. The sound design and the score by Volker Bertelmann complement and certainly lend well to the oppressive nature of the soldier's journey, and as his personality is affected by the horrors of the war around him, the film also seems to be affected by the sound mix going on. The inclusion of the sub-story around Erzberger's push for armistice sits well within the film. It never takes away from the novel's single-person approach to the war, and it instead adds some additional poignancy to the latter scenes of the war, as we realise that drawn-out negotiations were leading to many, many more soldiers still being killed unnecessarily. If any negative could be made for the film, it's maybe that, at times, the cinematography is too lavish, 
and some of the trench moments seem almost too perfectly realised, lacking the usual murkiness that other war films tend to utilise. But that's a minor niggle for an epic and grand retelling of a book and shouldn't put anyone off checking this one out. I've seen the previous versions. I've seen the Lou Ayres version uh, and the Richard Thomas version, John Boy Walton version, uh, and both are, are, are great films. But both films carried on the theme, so I'm assuming this is pretty much the same story that I've seen before, but that doesn't mean to say that it doesn't land for a brand new audience. Let's round off the reviews this week. I'm going to watch him live next year, so I watched the film this week, and that's Weird, the Al Yankovic story. You lucky thing, you. Hope you guys are ready for this. Yeah! He like a surgeon Cutting for the very first time Like a surgeon Anyone got an accordion? Like a surgeon Hey! Cutting for the very What can I say? I'm full of surprises. I can hear your heartbeat. If you go into Weird, the Al Yankovic story, expecting a realistic portrayal of the life of the master of the song parody, then you really don't know who Weird Al is. This feature biopic, itself drawn from a spoof trailer on Funny or Die back in 2010, is as much a parody of the modern musical biopic as Al's songs themselves are. And whilst the small nuggets of truth within the majority of the film is absolute nonsense. And you know what? I couldn't have wanted that anymore. The film charts the life of Al from his childhood obsession with making up his own lyrics to songs and playing in his accordion against his father's wishes, his meteoric rise to fame, and then on to his latter life as a celebrity, taking on Pablo Escobar alongside Madonna. Yes, you heard that right. The film plays extremely loose with the truth, and it's more a parody of films such as Bohemian Rhapsody than a true depiction of Weird Al. All the tropes of the biopic are rolled out, including the drink and drugs descent, the fallout with the bands, troubled family life, and the music execs who just don't get it. And the film has immense fun generating the laughs from it all. There's a solid list of names within the film. Rain Wilson pops up as Dr. Demento, Evan Rachel Wood as Madonna, and even Weird Al himself pops up as Tony Scotty. But the film belongs to Daniel Radcliffe. In the lead role as Al, he really taps into the whole essence of who Weird Al is. There's a pool party scene, which is reminiscent of a very similar scene in Boogie Nights. In the scene, Al is challenged on his ability to create lyrics, and it results in a few minutes of absolutely hilarious perfection from Radcliffe as he gets every mannerism and every twitch and every glance that Al would give down to perfection. Now, if you aren't really much of a Weird Al fan, then maybe this skitter biopics will underwhelm, especially in the wake of earlier parodies such as Walk Hard, Pop Star. There's been a wealth of them over the past couple of decades. But for fans of Al, this may be treading much similar ground, but it does it in that unique manner that we expect from the parody legend. And with a pleasant sense of wacky and zany wild fun, much like he delivered to us all the way back with the UHF, fans of Al are going to relish this film. Non-fans... I don't know, you might enjoy some elements, but you won't quite get why we think it's one of the funniest films of the year. That sounds awesome, Andy. I, um, I've i always had a soft spot for Weird Al, and the fact that you're going to see him next year, I guess that makes it a little bit more poignant. So that's the reviews. What's coming up next week? Oh man, have we got a busy, busy week ahead of us, both at cinemas and streaming. So like I said earlier on, I worry for the new releases coming out of the cinema because they'll be battling against the holdovers of Black Panther for screen space. Because in the UK, we've got Confess Fletch, 
lands at cinema. Oh, I didn't know that was getting a cinema release. I thought it was going straight to streaming. Yep, it's getting a limited limited release across cinemas. Spirited, the new Apple TV festive movie with Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell, lands at cinemas this week, as well as landing on Apple at the same time. The Menu, which we've had on our menu, menu. Ooh, for quite yeah, some well time, and Armageddon Time. So there's four new films of a wide variety of genres there that are going to be battling for screen space and some of them are going to fall for the, by the wayside unfairly because I think all of these films probably deserve to be watched on the big screen. Over on streaming, I liked the first film, but I'm not convinced I'm going to like the new one that's uh, landed on, landing on Now TV and Sky, and that's The Reef, Stalked. Yes, okay. it's another people trapped on an isolated rock while a shark is in the water film, and it's probably just going to do exactly the same. I'll give it a watch. You know what I'm like with my shark movies. I love them. We loved it earlier this year. Phantom of the Open. Lands on Sky and now TV this weekend. Oh, I'll watch that. Thoroughly, again. thoroughly charming film. Absolutely recommended. Over on Netflix, The Wonderlands this week, which is based on the book by Emma Don- Donoghue, which stars Florence Pugh, set in the Irish Midlands in 1862. Looks fantastic. It's got Florence Pugh in it. Of course, I'm watching it. And I edited it out the show when you originally mentioned it last month because you were a month early. But Wednesday starts on Wednesday the 23rd. <laughs> I was a Wednesday in advance. <laughs> Over on Amazon. The People We Hate at the Wedding, which is Kristen Bell's new comedy. Disney Plus sees The Santa Clauses for anyone who still wants to watch Tim Allen. And we've been looking forward to it. Disenchanted lands this week on Disney Plus. You're going to be so giddy, aren't you, when that comes out? And there, there you have far too many films that it's going to be a tricky to work out which ones we're going to be covering next week. Either that or we'll just have a four-hour show. <laughs> well, we've done it before. I'm sure we have. <laughs> That's a, a lot of content this week, both at cinemas and streaming. So whatever your tastes are, whatever you want out of like movies, there's something for everyone this week. And that's about it for this week. But before we go, yeah, we do it every week. It's our neat thing. Andy, what have you enjoyed? What have you loved? What do you bring to the table for your neat thing? Okay, mine's not exactly a neat thing because it's absolutely horrible that we have to have things like this in order to open people's eyes to a part of culture that is growing and becoming more and more dangerous. Um, I've been listening to the audiobook version of Laura Bates's Men Who Hate Women which is currently available for free if you're a subscriber to Audible as an Audible exclusive. And I thoroughly recommend everyone, male, female, parents, single people, listen to it. Laura Bates has published a few books over the years. Uh, she's the founder of the Everyday, Everyday Sexism Project to highlight the everyday sexism that happens in conversation, in work environments, etc. And over the years, she's had a lot of, uh, well, shall we say, horrible threats of violence of a sexual nature because of her attitudes and threats towards whatever future children she has, which is sickening. But she's never backed down, and she stuck stuck her head out of the parapet with men who hate women. She explores the manosphere, as it's known. Incel culture, pick-up artists who make fortunes with seminars and programs educating vulnerable men into the idea that women are just all subservience or cattle for men to use and abuse. The men going their own way movement who believe all women are subintelligent lies and cheats, and simple contact with them can ruin a man. Men who push for women to be stripped of all rights and in some cases not even considered human. Her book explores in depth. She created a fake online personality called Alex, who was a late teens boy who sits in his room and plays video games and quickly found herself 
getting invited to join forums of other people who like, uh, oh, you've never had a girlfriend. Oh, yeah, there's a load of us over here. And getting into that culture and finding that they've got their own acronyms and weird language that they use to describe things that it takes a while to get used to. And she says that it was more horrifying when she realized she didn't need to refer to her, her little notes of what all everything meant and she could understand the posts completely. It's It's worrying because it's quite easy. And she says this to just dismiss it and just say, it's just a few idiots online. It's nothing major to worry about. But she pulls on like various news reports and actual incidences that have taken place over the past decade that directly link to these online forums and the rise of incel culture. And it's horrifying. As a parent of teenagers myself, this is very eye-opening as to how easy it could be for your child to fall into this culture. And especially this week on the news, there was a, an article about there's a culture of bedroom gamer culture with the late teens to 20s now that people don't go out socialising as much. And so people aren't, they're not developing their social cues and like how to relate to people in society and not getting girlfriends as a result. And this ties into everything that Laura covers in this book. The audio, audio book is read by Laura herself. And she clearly knows a subject and it's fascinating, it's disturbing, it's distressing, it's compelling and it's essential. Everyone should check this out. Men Who Hate Women by Laura Bates. We spoke about it in depth uh, the other day, didn't we? And uh, yeah, and we tackled little bits of it on the show. And, and as I said to you, it's a, it's a subcult that I, I, I can't get my head around. I don't understand it. I, I don't understand how it's grown, but you're absolutely right. It is it is very worrying that these little acorns of hate seem to be taking hold and growing into something much, much more. Um, on a slightly, well, on a much lighter side, um, my neat thing this week is Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, which landed a couple of weeks ago on Netflix. I love a good horror anthology. I'm especially into them where you get the payoff of it not just being a mystery, but it is a proper horror uh, take on it and it has all the, the wickedness that one would come to expect with Yelmo del Toro. So the series, if you've not had a chance to see it, it features eight modern horror stories that are, are very traditional sort of grand guignol, gothic genres, co-written, uh, some of them co-written by del Toro himself, others written and directed by various filmmakers, which include the Babadook filmmaker Jennifer Kent, uh, Anna Lilia Amapur, Panos Cosmetos, Catherine Hardwick, Guillermo Navarro, uh, Vincent, uh, Vincenzo uh, Natale. Uh, and they are a blast. They are exactly as it does on the tin. Scares the pants off you and, and always been uh, an, an awful lot of fun. And Del Toro brings his best Alfred Hitchcock to each episode as he introduces what he's in, the Cabinet of Curiosity. And this is my kind of horror. I like I like monsters the same way that Del Toro does. And uh, one in particular really got to me, which was the Graveyard Rats episode, mm -hmm. uh, because it was so claustrophobic. Oh, and David Hewlett is magnificent in that episode. Yeah, absolutely. So well worth well worth watching. If you like your uh, short stories to be Lovecraftian, I think there's the best way to, to talk about it. Yeah. This is the series for you. There's two episodes that are inspired by, well, based on short stories by Lovecraft, right, yeah. Pickman's Model and Dreams in the Witch House, yeah. which don't don't always hit the mark, 
But the episodes that do hit the mark, like you say, Graveyard Rats is magnificent. I really enjoyed the autopsy as well uh, with F. Murray Abraham. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was that was nice and squeamish. And again, had that sort of Lovecraftian element to it. Um, yeah, just it's just a lot of fun. This is my kind of horror, folks, and I uh, highly yeah. recommend it. It took me back to the days of Hammer House of Horror. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I You know, I think horror works in... Uh, like Masters of Horror a few a few years ago, but it's mm. this has got the the budget and the effects work to to really pay off in a way that we've we've not seen before. Absolute blast! Great cast as well: Peter Weller, Sophia Boutella, Rupert Grint, uh, the great Crispin Glover, Ben Barnes, Dan Stevens, uh, Luke Roberts. Just an absolute joy. And of course, you mentioned David Hewlett, who was fantastic yeah. in it. Um, that's it for this week, folks. We'll be back uh, all being well. The cinema gods looking down and smiling on us. We'll be back again next week to do the whole thing all over again. Well, not the whole thing. We'll have like different, different words. We'll, we'll talk different things, but we'll do the show again. <laughs> so have but a good yes. week, my friend. Yeah, um, like I say, with that, with that many films coming out, I'm going to have a busy week of uh, trying to watch as much as I can and then deciphering which ones we can talk about next week. Yeah, so uh, stay safe. I'll see you next week, my friend. Uh, remember, knock it off with the negative waves, man. Beep, I think we should beep. pattern geekery. <laughs> Two men, both alike in geekery, in first <laughs> Sheffield where we lay our scene. <laughs> And welcome to the film file. You've got a mouthful of food. <laughs> chew, the boy, chew, file. chew. <laughs> chew, Forrest, chew. Be like a train and chew, chew. <laughs> <laughs>